thank you very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, be back at Stanford University, even uh, if it is uh, virtually like this time. Um, and thank you to Professor Abbas Milani for his kind invitation uh, to me to share my thoughts on the uh, topic. Uh, my talk today is about Iran in the age of imperialism, Iran in the 19th century, uh, an age in which the British and the French uh, extended their rule over Asia and Africa. In the 18th century, they, were, they had to retreat from the Americas. So after the US independence, after the independence of Haiti, the British and to a little bit lesser extent, uh, the French began um, their quest to control Africa and Asia. In the course of this quest, most of the native states of Asia lost their independence. Some became protectorates, some were abolished, some uh, were recognized as princely states where the local princes continued administering day-to-day -day affairs. But um, in this uh, European expansion, a very small number of states managed to retain their sovereignty. They were really small group. In Asia, from east to west, we have Japan, China, Siam, which is now called Thailand, Iran. Uh, then there's the Ottoman Empire, a tricontinental state, and in Africa, Ethiopia. This is a very small number. In other words, of the 195 countries in existence today, only six are non-Western states that survived the, uh, uh, the age of imperialism as independent states, if we consider Turkey to be the successor of the Ottoman Empire. And Iran is one of these six, which gives it a somewhat um, different type of insertion in the international system. The price these six countries, these six empires had to pay for their con uh, continued sovereignty was that they had to sign what came to be known as unequal treaties. In other words, treaties that on the one hand guaranteed them their continued independence, but on the other hand, limited their sovereignty because many of the stipulations of these treaties were not reciprocal. That's why we call them unequal treaties. And this has to do with the jurisdiction. As European trade was expanding, as more and more British uh, traders went to places like Persia and uh, the Chinese empire, the Qing empire in China, the British government and other governments like it were concerned for the safety of uh, these people, um, also diplomats, missionaries, and so on. And uh, they basically insisted that their subjects in these states, these Asian states, be exempt from the local jurisdiction. Now, if a British subject committed a crime in China, who would judge him? Well, British consular officials. This is why we call this consular jurisdiction. And uh, in the uh, vocabulary of diplomacy, the word capitulation has been used. The capitulations are arrangements whereby citizens of the Western countries are exempt from local jurisdiction in non-Western countries. 
the reason or if you prefer pretext for this being that the non-Western countries do not have codified legal systems and therefore um, lacked predictability and the subject of a European power couldn't count on a fair trial in them. Now, in principle, in the beginning, these arrangements were not that inconvenient for Asian states for the simple reason that legal pluralism prevailed in them. In vast empires like China, or, or even like uh, slightly smaller empires like Persia, different communities, uh, different religious groups, different geographic areas, different provinces, different professional groups had their own rules. There was no, in Iran at least, no national codified legal system. And in the beginning, uh, the idea of giving a group of foreign traders their own rules to live by and to act by could be inserted in the legal pluralism that existed anyway. Um, and it's for that reason that Iranian rulers, beginning with the Ilkhanids actually, granted European uh, traders certain privileges on Iranian territory. This was not seen as an act of subordination. It uh, was part of the legal pluralism that existed in these countries. At times it was even reciprocal. For instance, uh, in 1708, uh, the last uh, Safavid Shah, Shah Sultan Hussein, uh, signed an agreement with the French state, uh, which called for reciprocal uh, consular jurisdiction. In other words, an Iranian consul in Marseille was given the right to oversee the activities of Iranians in Marseille, uh, these Iranians being mostly Armenians. Uh, but the demise of the Safavid dynasty uh, in 1722 put an end to uh, all of this. So um, how did these uh, unequal arrangements come about? Well, in the Ottoman Empire, it was gradual in the sense that from um, generous exemptions granted by the Sultan to foreign traders, they gradually become impositions, uh, became impositions on the Ottoman state as the power of the Ottoman state vis-a-vis -vis European powers waned. Uh, in Iran and China, uh, these arrangements came about as a result of military defeat. And in uh, Japan and Siam, um, they came about as uh, the result of treaties signed because the Japanese and the Siamese knew and saw what had happened to China and Iran. They didn't want to wait until they were militarily defeated. So they consented to unequal treaties. And since these unequal treaties weren't the result of any wars, they got slightly better terms than the Chinese, uh, Iran, uh, and the Iranians had received. So why do I mention this? Because I want to show that the Iranian case, the uh, place of Iran in the diplomatic world of the 19th century isn't unique. Um, and if Iran had to sign unequal treaties, it was neither a sign of the in, uh, incompetence of the Bajar rulers, nor a result of their lack of patriotism. Uh, it was because they didn't have the strength to stand up to the European powers. Even mighty China, even mighty Japan had to sign these uh, unequal uh, treaties. So, uh, in Iran, as uh, most historians of Iran know, the age of uh, unequal treaties begins in 1828 uh, at Troika when uh, Iran has to sign a peace treaty with Russia, uh, a peace treaty that ended the second uh, Russo-Iranian war. Uh, 
uh, and uh, in which the, Russian got, the Russians got extraterritorial rights, uh, consular jurisdiction. They received the right to maintain consulates in all parts of Iran where there was Russian trading activity, and uh, these consuls received jurisdiction over Russian subjects. Turkmenchai, the village in Azerbaijan where this treaty was signed, the word Turkmenchai came to symbolize Iranian subordination to uh, more strong powers. And uh, for instance, in 1889, a high level official, Etamada Santaneh, uh, when he passes through the village, he looks at the ruins of the house where the treaty had been signed uh, and writes in his diary that this house is where Iran's um, Iran's uh, misfortunes began, where Iran's misfortunes began. So uh, the uh, Russian treaty was soon followed by other treaties uh, for a simple reason. In international law, there's a principle known as the most favored nation. And uh, a country can ask another country to give it the same privileges that it had consented previously to another country. So when Iran cons had to consent to these privileges to the Russians, soon other countries came and said, we want the same thing. Why do you favor the Russians over us? And the interesting thing is that every time another country made such a demand on Iran, the Iranian government dragged its feet. It's not as though they rolled over and said, okay, we signed. Uh, negotiations would take years until finally they had to give in uh, under the, uh, under the um, of, because the, the European power was just uh, stronger. And so the second uh, country to sign such a commercial treaty, which gives its subjects privileges in Iran, is Britain. That comes in 1841. And soon in the 1850s, beginning in the 1850s, you have countries like Spain, like uh, Austria, like Belgium, like Prussia, uh, and eventually even the United States uh, signing uh, treaties with Iran, uh, which grant their citizens exemptions from Iranian jurisdiction. Now, why would Iran, uh, which was under no direct pressure from these countries, sign these treaties? The reason was that Iranian diplomacy was trying to find alternatives to the two states that had uh, imperialist designs on Iran, namely Russia in the north and British in the south because of British India. So Iranian diplomacy was always eager to forge ties with other countries in Europe and uh, the price these other countries extracted for establishing relations with Iran was again, based on the principle of, multi of uh, most favored nation to uh, gain these uh, privileges. Um, one interesting case is the uh, relationship between the Ottoman Empire and Iran. Of course, the Ottoman Empire was in the same situation. They had to sign capitulary treaties as well. But uh, when the uh, two Muslim states, the two remaining sovereign Muslim states of the 19th century finally came to make peace in uh, two treaties uh, in the first part of the 19th century, they granted each other extraterritorial jurisdiction. Um, and so this was a case where extraterritorial jurisdiction was actually reciprocal. And this will have a consequence for the eventual abolition of the capitulations uh, in Iran. Now, what does consular jurisdiction mean in, pract means in practice? It means that uh, if, say, let's take the example of Russians in, in, in Iran. 
If two Russians uh, have a uh, legal dispute, well, without any ambiguity, Russian consular or diplomatic uh, representatives in Iran will look into the matter. If two Iranians have a, a dispute, obviously it's for the Iranian legal system to look into the matter. The difficulty is if there's a dispute between a Russian and an Iranian. And um, this uh, has to be dealt with in a way that involves both the Russian and the Iranian legal system. In countries like China and Egypt, uh, a system of mixed courts had been created where you had local judges and uh, judges from the capitulary powers who jointly would adjudicate a uh, dispute. But the Iranian government always refused to have mixed courts. And they invented a system that, to the best of my knowledge, is unique to Iran, uh, which was a system of cargozars. These cargozars were employees of the foreign ministry stationed in different parts of the country who were responsible for the relationship between foreign traders and the Iranian authorities. So the Kargozar had a little court, uh, more an arbitration court than a legal court actually, where the consul of the foreign um, trader who was in a dispute with an Iranian trader would be present and they would try to uh, solve the issue in an amicable way because again, there was no legal code to go by. The, Iran had no civil law. So uh, very often this took the form of mediation, arbitration, and to try to uh, come to a solution which, we, which would be acceptable to both sides. And uh, one interesting aspect is that the foreign ministry also used these employees, which it had in Shiraz, Mashhad, Tehran, uh, Karamantra, et cetera, to keep an eye on the foreigners. So uh, these cargozars had many functions, not only look into legal disputes, but also make sure that the foreigners uh, uh, behave in a way that was uh, acceptable to the uh, government. Uh, where this system became incredibly onerous for Iran was uh, that gradually the capitulary powers, and they did exactly the same in China, Siam, and the Ottoman Empire, the capitulary powers extended this rule uh, to locals. Uh, in other words, uh, it began when the uh, Treaty of Torkamanchai said that Iranian employees of Russian consulates or the Russian embassy would get the same privileges as the Russian uh, representatives in Iran. But then this was extended and all sorts of people, usually merchants, uh, would place themselves under the protection of the capitulary powers. They became known as protégés. This is the protégé system, and thereby exempt themselves from the jurisdiction of their own country. And uh, this, of course, was a much more onerous imposition on Iran than the fact that a few hundred uh, British uh, traders in the South would be exempt from uh, Iranian jurisdiction because these protégés then had an advantage over those of their competitors uh, in the marketplace, which did not have the protection of a foreign power. Their disputes would be uh, looked into by the local cargo czars as opposed to the local uh, legal authorities. And as the century uh, moved on, more and more uh, people uh, availed themselves of this opportunity. More and more people became Russian protégés 
or uh, British uh, protégés. The only way to remedy the situation was, of course, legal reform. Uh, the, what justified the system of capitulations was the absence of a penal code um, in uh, traditional Iran, as in traditional China, um, punishments could be extremely cruel. Uh, for instance, in Iran, a person could be tortured in order to uh, get a confession out of him. So obviously, foreign powers didn't want to subject their subjects uh, to these kind of punishments. Uh, and uh, it became uh, obvious that uh, for Iran to gain full uh, legal sovereignty, they had to abolish these kinds of uh, punishments and adopt a modern or Western Euro uh, legal system. The other thing was commercial codes. Uh, if, um, if a British uh, trader owed, uh, uh, was owed some money by an Iranian trader and the Iranian trader said, I can't pay you back because I'm bankrupt, there were no bankruptcy laws to uh, make sure that the British trader is, um, is uh, given what is his due. And so uh, a commercial code was also needed. Not only a penal code, was also a commercial code. Registries where you register deed, where you have documents, uh, whereby you can, uh, in a dispute, actually ascertain who owes whom what, uh, and so on. Uh, in other words, legal reform became a major, uh, if not the precondition for ending these limitations on Iranian uh, sovereignty, the rule of law. And uh, a big change in the way that uh, modernist Iranians saw these issues came in 1857 after the uh, Iranian uh, defeat uh, in Herat when Iranian forces uh, were forced by the British to evacuate the, in, uh, the emirate of uh, Herat. And at that point, uh, the notion gained strength that what was wrong with Iran was not that there were abuses of the system in the system, but that the system itself uh, had to be changed. And uh, it's at that point that uh, modernists uh, such as Malcolm Khan and Mirza Yusuf Khan and Mustafa Dole introduced the notion of qanun, of law of a written law, uh, which is internally consistent, which is standardized, which is codified, and uh, without which um, Iran would not gain the respect of uh, foreign uh, powers. And uh, the interesting thing is that the, the, um, the uh, impetus for this call for legal reform, most of the time came from Iranians who had served abroad. Uh, Iranians who had served as diplomats in Europe, uh, in Constantinople, in St. Petersburg, and so on. Uh, just to give you an example, in 1867, 1868, the uh, three Iranian representatives in um, St. Petersburg, uh, Paris, and London send a joint letter to the Persian government in which they argue as follows, quote, the task whose accomplishment is needed above all else is the establishment of law. Until such time as the legislative and executive powers are separated, it will be impossible for the state and the nation to strengthen the army, extend development, and secure a good name among foreign states. Uh, they're also called for, an for the abolition of cruel punishments, 
saying, uh, quote, that uh, they gave the country a bad name abroad. So uh, the, uh, there were modest attempts at legal reform uh, in the uh, last third of the uh, 19th century. But most of the time, these uh, reforms were thwarted. They were thwarted either by the Shah himself, who didn't want to uh, lose too much power, or by conservative forces in society. And the reason is that any legal reform which would put foreigners under Iranian jurisdiction, in other words, abolish the capitulations, would by definition mean legal equality for Muslims and non-Muslims. Because to put British and Russian subjects under Iranian law, you had to give them the same rights as you gave Iranian Muslims, the majority of the population. And this was the sticky point because conservatives, especially the Shia clergy were adamantly opposed to giving Muslims and infidels the same rule under the uh, law. And this was recognized by, uh, by uh, uh, Malcolm Khan, the great uh, uh, reformer of 19th century Iran, the great reformist uh, intellectual and uh, diplomat, uh, when he observed Japan, where all of this was happening. I mean, the Japanese were busy reforming their laws, uh, giving themselves a constitution. And so in the 1890s, they became the first Asian power to convince the Europeans that the capitulations were no longer needed. And by the early 20th century, they were accepted as an equal by the Europeans. So uh, in 1891, Malcolm Khan lamented, quote, it is true that the Japanese have copied Europe. There is no such obstacle there as in our case, as, is, as in our case, for their religion is not so strong, but we are prevented from following their example. And uh, what prevents exam this uh, example is precisely the, uh, uh, the opposition against equality, not only between Muslim Iranians and non-Muslim Iranians, but also be between Muslim Iranians and uh, for uh, uh, foreigners. Then we come to the Constitutional Revolution of 1905-1907. And this is the beginning of the codification of law, because when the parliament is constituted, they uh, write a constitution, following the constitution, different codes are uh, elaborated, and we begin the process of the codification of uh, Iranian law. And uh, in the debates between conservatives and modernists at the constitutional revolution, the issue of the rights of non-Muslims is a key one. Uh, for instance, uh, Sheikh Fazlullah Nouri, who pleaded for a uh, Sharia conforming constitution, uh, was livid when uh, an attempt was made to punish the murderer of an Iranian Zoroastrian first. And uh, in response to the modernists' attempt to write laws that would give equality to everybody, at one point, he lists the inequalities that uh, exist in Iran. I will uh, quote from that. Um, he pointed out in one of his uh, treatises, uh, 
to the a, a treatise known as Risaleya Tahrim Mashrutiyat, a a treatise uh, against constitutionalism. He pointed out that Islam uh, contained that the Sharia contained all sorts of inequalities between individuals, and he lists them. He says that Islam differentiated between adult and immature, sane and insane, healthy and ill, free agent and desperate, willing and compelled, a person or their agent or guardian, freeborn and slave, father and son, husband and wife, rich and poor, learned and ignorant, uh, doubtful and certain, imitator and source of emu uh, emulation, descendant of the prophet and commoner, Muslim and infidel, tributary infidel versus hostile infidel, somebody who had, um, and the final distinctions he make is between simple apostates and uh, people who had become Muslims and then became uh, apostates again. So he argues that given this, uh, given that uh, the Sharia includes this variety of inequalities, any attempt to create a legal system uh, with, uh, that gives uh, people equality is actually uh, unacceptable. Uh, nonetheless, the constitutionalists uh, did their best. They came up with uh, certain codes. Uh, the legal system was uh, reformed. And um, so they muddled through. This was an incredibly difficult time in Iranian history. The authority of the central government uh, had disappeared in many parts of the country. In World War I, foreigners fought each other on Iranian territory. Uh, much of the country was occupied by foreign forces. There were warlords in every corner. Uh, law and order had broken down. So it's a miracle that uh, the parliamentarians in Tehran managed to do anything. Uh, but they actually did. Uh, create a, an embryonic um, legal uh, system, except even that uh, did not meet the, uh, uh, the standard of equality. And uh, in uh, his diary, uh, Prince Eno Saltaneh, Nasruddin's youngest son, uh, youngest brother, uh, noted in 1918 that, uh, I quote, um, at the present time are overbearing and impudent lawyers who in spite of engaging in bribery and using a thousand tricks cannot bring a case to a close or implement a court order. And here it is important. It is difficult to believe, it is difficult to believe that an Armenian or European who wishes honestly to state his case could get a fair trial. This is as late as uh, 1918. So what, uh, what the prelude to uh, the abolition of the uh, capitulations uh, in Iran is uh, the fact that um, uh, in 1914, uh, the Ottomans uh, unilaterally declare that they will no longer be bound by uh, capitulations. And this is, of course, part of their entry into World War I. Uh, Germany and Austria voluntarily relinquished their capitulations. And on that basis, the Ottomans wanted to abolish French and British capitulations too. Nothing came of it, of course, because of the outbreak of the uh, Great War. 
But since the Ottoman Empire and Iran had also capitulary uh, arrangements, uh, the Iranians argued, well, if the Ottomans abolish the rights we have, we can abolish the rights they have. And so in, the, in 1914, Iran declares uh, that they will no longer grant capitulary rights to Ottoman subjects in Iran, which was an opening for abolishing capitulations elsewhere. The next uh, lucky uh, break that Iran gets, it's the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution, where Lenin was uh, very sympathetic to semi-colonial areas like Iran. And uh, the Bolshevik very quickly issued a declaration saying that they're willing to forego all the privileges that Tsarist Russia had uh, imposed uh, on Iran. And uh, later on uh, in 1921, a treaty is actually signed in which uh, equality between the two sides is, um, is uh, um, enshrined. So uh, given the events in the Ottoman Empire, 1914, and the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, in July 1918, the uh, Iranian prime minister unilaterally puts an end to the capitulations. Um, and the declaration reads as follows. Considering that all the treaties and concessions of Russia were taken by force, that the world's great powers have throughout the war affirmed weak nations' rights to economic and political independence, and that the new government of Russia has declared that it will renounce its privileges, the government declared the abolition of all capitulations. In other words, we cannot grant the British and the French and the Belgians what we no longer have to grant to the uh, Russians. And uh, needless to say, this declaration was totally ignored by uh, the outside powers because in 1918, the Iranian government uh, hardly controlled Tehran. And so uh, foreign European powers had no incentive to take this uh, seriously. Uh, later, Iran makes an attempt to attend the conference at Versailles, uh, arguing that uh, the country had suffered tremendously. Uh, they asked for reparations because the uh, warfare between the Ottomans and the Russians on Iranian territory had obviously caused an awful lot of damage to uh, Iran. Iran had uh, gone through a famine. Uh, the, um, the Spanish flu had killed 1 million people in 1919. Iran was in terrible shape uh, at, as, as, uh, at the end of World War I. So a delegation is sent to uh, Paris to make these claims at the Versailles Conference, uh, except that the British managed to stop uh, the participation of Iranians, arguing that since Iran had been a neutral country and not a belligerent, it had no business attending a peace conference. Uh, the, however, an Iranian delegation was sent uh, under a very competent diplomat, uh, and uh, the demands made in 1919 outside the conference, sort of in you know, hotel lobbies and in interviews with the press and so on, was precisely the abolition of the uh, capitulations again. So as of 1918, 1919, the Iranian government is on record for trying very hard to uh, abolish the uh, capitulations. Now, the difficulty arose with the Russians because the Russians had voluntarily uh, abandoned their uh, rights in Iran. However, there was no law to govern the, uh, uh, the um, uh, disputes between uh, Russian subjects and the Iranians. So 
There was a case in northern Iran where we, we are now speaking of the Bolshevik representatives in Iran. Uh, in 1920, 21, uh, a Russian uh, citizen, uh, gets into trouble with the law and uh, the uh, Russian uh, consul uh, wants to deny the Iranian authorities uh, the right to deal with the issue. Uh, and uh, the Iranians say, no, well, you have yourself uh, renounced these privileges. We are in charge. And so the Russian says, well, yes, I mean, we're happy to give you uh, to hand this man over, but what are the laws? under which uh, this man will actually be tried. And so the Iranians are in a quandary because the, the establishment of a penal law is running into lots of problems for the conservatives. So at this point, uh, a, an Iranian lawyer who had returned from Europe with a doctorate in law uh, from Switzerland, Mirza Mohammad Khan Mossadegh Saltaneh, uh, who incidentally in 1914 had written a small book on the capitulations in which he had pointed out what needed to be done to abolish them. And in 1914, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, who of course in 1951 becomes prime minister, in 1914 he was still a young uh, lawyer who argues in this small book that in order to get rid of the capitulations, Iranians had to bite the bullet and grant uh, legal equality to non-Muslims. And he justified that by reference to the principle of expedience, of maslahat. So uh, with the case of this Russian in limbo, uh, Mossadegh is sent to a cleric who is a relatively progressive man who had sympathies with the constitutionalists, uh, Jamal. And uh, he says, uh, you know, please uh, give us a break. Uh, look into the issue, find ways uh, to make uh, equality of rights for non-Muslims uh, compatible with the Sharia on the basis of expediency. The greater good takes precedence over the lesser good uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will never gain sovereignty. And uh, the cleric answers uh, with a short and pithy uh, reply. He says, Jahannam. In other words, to hell. Uh, to hell with uh, independence. And it's at that point that the legal modernists give up on uh, trying to uh, proceed with the agreement of the ulama. And that's why it's probably not a coincidence that the final legal reforms take place once the dictatorship of Reza Shah has been put in place, uh, because uh, there would have been no way to gain a consensus on uh, these issues. Compromises are made, for instance, in the civil law, uh, the traditional Islamic rules pertaining to birth, um, inheritance, marriage, divorce, uh, all of these things are enshrined. So Iranian civil law actually incorporates the uh, Sharia. That's why it was not abolished after the revolution in 1979. It was only amended to reinsert inequalities of uh, non-Muslims and Muslims. Uh, but the penal law is completely new. Uh, so uh, Iran gets a penal law, which is uh, basically uh, an adaptation of uh, European penal law with jail sentences and uh, so on. And this happens in the uh, sort of 
between 1925 and 1927. And in order to signal uh, Iran's willingness to join the uh, uh, family of, um, of law-abiding nations uh, in 1927, uh, no, in 1926, uh, Iran actually at the League of Nations of which it is a member, signs the anti-slavery convention and one year later, slavery is abolished in Iran. So slavery is abolished in Iran in, 97, in 1927. That was a sine qua non uh, for acceptance as a legal equal. And then in uh, 1928, uh, once all these new legal codes are in place, uh, the government announces that it will unilaterally end the capitulations and uh, foreign powers no longer make a fuss. Uh, this is accepted, and uh, there's a one-year uh, transition period, and after that, Iran becomes a fully sovereign uh, nation in that foreigners no longer enjoy any extraterritorial rights uh, in Iran. Uh, soon, uh, a case occurred in which all of this could be tested. In 1933, the German director of the National Bank of Iran, Bank Meli, uh, a man by the name of Kurt Lindenblatt was accused of malpractice and he was indicted uh, in Iran. Uh, this was the first time that a major case was brought against a national of a former uh, capitary power and the authorities uh, wanted to make sure that the proceedings would be impeccable so as to confirm the view that Iran now abided by international standards of uh, legality. And so the court was made up uh, of one presiding judge and two assessor judges who had all lived in Berlin and spoke German, uh, while Lindenblatt was allowed to be represented by his own German attorney, in addition to two Iranian uh, attorneys, both of whom spoke German as well. Uh, he is tried, he is found guilty but he is given a relatively light sentence. I mean, even the German embassy at the time admits that if he had committed this act in Germany, the, the sentence would have been stronger. And uh, so uh, the case ended to the satisfaction, not only of uh, the German embassy, but also to uh, the uh, uh, Iranian government. And uh, sort of that's how we can say that in 1928, uh, exactly a hundred years after Perkaman Chai, the capitulary regime ends in Iran uh, one century. I mean, in China, people talk about the century of humiliation, uh, which goes from 1832 to 1843. Uh, unlike China's uh, century of humiliation, the century of humiliation of Iran actually lasted only 100 years, from 1828 to 1928. I thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Professor. That was wonderful. We do have several questions coming in, so I'm going to get right to them. Um, a viewer writes, thank you for the informative lecture. Can you please expand on the notion of legal pluralism in Persia prior to 1828 in relation to Western countries' codified legal system? Yeah, this was uh, not only prior to uh, 1828. This was uh, all through the 19th century. Uh, for instance, the uh, religious minorities. Um, Armenians, Jews, Zoroastrians uh, regulated their internal affairs according to uh, different rules than uh, the Muslims did. 
um, you also had a, a binary system of jurisdiction. On the one hand, you had the uh, Sharia courts, which were presided by a cleric, usually in his own house. Uh, there were no, there wasn't a court building or anything. Uh, the Sharia, uh, you know, the local clerics would uh, uh, register deeds, for instance, uh, of uh, you know the purchase of a house or a sale of a garden, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, but there were also secular courts, uh, which uh, in the uh, in the language of ir the Iranian legal system are known as orfi courts, orf, and these were under the jurisdiction of the local governor. In Tehran, under the jurisdiction of the Shah, in the provinces, under the, under the local governor, who acted on behalf of the Shah. And uh, this means that there was no distinction between the executive and the legislative branch of the government, uh, which is something that the legal modernists wanted to establish. Because uh, you know, if you have a corrupt governor, which, and you, who has to look into a trade dispute between two merchants, chances are that the merchant who pays the higher bribe or who is a distant cousin of a governor uh, will have an advantage over his uh, competitor and uh, the, the other person. Uh, and it wasn't quite clear which cases would go to the Sharia court and which case would go to the governor's court. Uh, in theory, there was a distinction between the two, but in practice, this distinction was very often blurred. In addition, different mujtahids, different clerics could give different uh, judgments on issues. And this meant that there was quite a bit of what in today's language we would call forum shopping, where uh, the uh, disputants would try to find a forum um, this uh, cleric versus the other cleric, the governor versus the cleric, etc., to uh, to get a judgment that was to their advantage. And what this was precisely why so many Iranians tried to become protégés, because uh, then the presence of a British consul or Russian consul at the Kargozars court made meant a certain predictability at least, made it in their eyes a little bit more likely that they would get a uh, just outcome. And then of course, the other thing is that Iran wasn't a centralized country and uh, that uh, you had uh, some uh, uh, little tributary states on the periphery of Iran, uh, the various Arab sheikdoms on the South Coast, the sheikdom of Boucher, the sheikdom of Muhammara, uh, the Amir of Ba'inat in the eastern part of the country, uh, the Khan of Moku, uh, all these people had uh, their own uh, competencies vis-a-vis -vis their subjects uh, as well. Thank you, Professor. We have a lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to try to ask as many as we have time for. Um, one viewer says, um, um, some Mossadeghists complained that it was he who achieved the equality between Muslims and non-Muslims. Is it correct to understand then that he did not achieve it, but that it was actually Reza Shah who made it happen? Uh, no, it was not Reza Shah who made it happen because Reza Shah was not a lawyer and uh, his dictatorship provided the framework where lawyers, real lawyers, uh, people like Mossadegh, uh, people like his uh, son-in-law, 
His son-in-law played a very important role, uh, Ahmad Matin Daftari, uh, wrote laws that did no longer have to meet with the complete agreement of the clergy. I mean, they tried to, uh, you know, they tried to write the laws so as to blunt a little bit possible attacks. But in the end, uh, they, it's the lawyers, uh, foreign educated lawyers, uh, with a few sympathetic members of the clergy together who wrote Iran's new legal systems. And in fact, one of the major sources for my work on the capitulations is the doctoral dissertation of Mossadegh's son-in-law. Because Mossadegh writes his book on the capitulations in 1914, then his son-in-law and, uh, and uh, uh, close relative, uh, Ahmad Matin Daftari, goes to Europe and writes in Paris a dissertation on the abolition of the capitulations. And in this dissertation, he writes the kind of obstacles uh, he writes about the obstacles, the, the uh, difficulties that the lawyers had in creating this modern legal system. So we have a nice inside account of the compromises they had to make uh, and so on. And this took place in the context of uh, Reza Shah's nascent dictatorship, uh, 1925, 1926, 1927. Is extraterritoriality relevant to control over lands, minerals, and labor in Khuzestan in the early 1900s? Not directly, because extraterritoriality consists of treaties signed between governments. Uh, it's the Iranian government and the British government and the Russian governments that signed treaties, whereas concessions, very important, like the Reuter concession, the tobacco concession, the oil concession, are treaties signed between the Iranian government and a foreign company. Or, or a foreign businessman. And uh, therefore their legal, legal status is different. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, uh, of course, if you are a British uh, businessman uh, angling for a concession in Iran, chances are that British diplomats support you uh, and put pressure on the Iranian government to grant you this concession. But uh, in, they're not directly related, but of course, there's part of the same syndrome. And the syndrome being the weakness of Iran as a state in the international system, which forces it to sign in, uh, unequal treaties in order to maintain what little sovereignty they have, and uh, which uh, forces them to sign these concessions. But the other thing one should remember is that from the point of view of the Iranian government, the concessions are not necessarily something bad because they bring in revenue. The Iranian government is broke uh, at this time. So they're constantly looking for ways to raise revenue. And so when a foreign uh, merchant comes in and says, you know, give me the concession for this mine and in exchange, I will pay the treasury so many thousand pounds a year, from the point of view of the government, this is a good deal because without that business, that businessman, that economic resource wouldn't have been exploited to begin with. So uh, in other words, these foreign concessions and the extraterritorial rights are part of the same syndrome of weakness and underdevelopment, but they're uh, sort of 
um, analytically uh, different. Thank you. Another viewer writes, thank you for the insightful talk. I was wondering what your thoughts are about extraterritorial rights in the Islamic Republic of Iran, for instance, with the current agreement with China and its dispositions about extraterritorial rights for China. Uh, I don't know what these extraterritorial rights are. To the best of my knowledge, uh, the details of the uh, agreement are still not fully known. Uh, and uh, I obliquely tried to refer to this uh, uh, issue by pointing out at the beginning that Turkmen Shai has come to sim symbolize the uh, subordination of Iran. And so uh, when this agreement, uh, this 25-year agreement with China was announced, people again started talking about a new Turkmen Uh, But I'm afraid I don't know enough about the concrete uh, dispositions of this agreement to argue one way or the other. Sorry. Thank you. Um, another viewer writes, isn't the diversity of the legal system a form of federalism that ensures local autonomy, i.e. centralized systems are more amenable to dictatorship? To some extent, yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's, uh, these are sort of uh, pre-modern checks and balances uh, in a sense that we think of the uh, pre-constitutional Shahs of Iran, uh, the you know, Fatali Ali Shahs, Muhammad Shahs, Nasruddin Shahs and so on as being arbitrary despots who can do what they want to do. Uh, that is not quite true. Uh, there are checks and balances in the polity um, except that they are not constitutionally enshrined. They are just de facto checks and balances. Uh, the Shah cannot order and uh, sort of cannot order the head of the Bakhtiari tribe or the Tashkai tribe around. Uh, they have, everything is a matter of negotiation and of uh, um, sort of coming together and seeking consensus uh, between different groups in society, guilds, merchants, uh, clerics, uh, tribal leaders, uh, uh, and so on. But the 19th century is a century of centralization where the central government in Tehran tries to bring more and more of the country under its control, uh, and it actually succeeds. Uh, we very often think of the loss of the territory in uh, the Caucasus, the loss of the territory in Turkmenistan, the inability to conquer the Emirate of Herat and so on as elements of uh, diminishing Iranian power. But at the same time, uh, local rulers in Iran are deprived of their power. For instance, the, the uh, Emirate of Ardalan uh, comes under direct rule of uh, Tehran. Uh, the uh, uh, Oman controlled large parts of Iran's southern coast. Uh, the Omanis are thrown out under the reign of Nasruddin Shah. Uh, Nasruddin Shah makes a deal with the British to divide Baluchistan. So Iran gets a share of uh, Baluchistan uh, and uh, the sheikhdom of Boucher is ended uh, and the Arab sheikh of Boucher is thrown out. So uh, in a sense, uh, centralization does take place uh, in Iran. And I think if we want to uh, conceptualize the territorial uh, arrangements in Iran, Iran has to let go of some outer provinces like Caucasus and so on, like Herat, but in exchange and at the same time consolidates rule over areas that were under very light central control before.
Thank you. We have just a few minutes left. I'm going to ask maybe two more questions. A viewer writes, uh, you seem to imply that the claims of the colonial powers are legitimate because of the lack of codified laws in places like Iran. Did England have a codified system? Or to ask the same question another way, to what extent was their claim a ruse to hide their hegemony ideas about the superiority of the Western or white cultures? Uh, both. Um, both. But... Uh the uh, you know the uh, uh, the superiority of white culture was uh, very much part of european attitudes to uh, asian there's no doubt about that they felt they are more civilized than the asians but what i'm trying to say is that there's a material basis uh, for this view when you look for instance at the incredibly cruel way that uh, that uh, uh, that uh, convicts were executed uh, in iran uh, I mean, you don't have to go to British sources. You can find these in Iranian sources, the, uh, the torturing uh, and so on. The imperialism comes in with trade. Uh, 19th century British imperialism was a British imperialism of trade. Uh, for the British and for the Americans, being civilized meant trading with other nations. That's where Commodore Perry enters uh, Tokyo Bay in 1853 to open up Japan. But once you have that, once you have traders uh, in Iran, you obviously want to make sure that uh, these traders uh, are treated according to standards uh, that they are used to. And Britain, of course, has no civil law, but uh, Britain has a common law. And the rule of law uh, was much more centralized in Britain or in France. I mean, France had civil law since Napoleon uh, than uh, elsewhere. Uh, in other words, yes, the British could have these attitudes precisely because they were imperialists. But once you accept the reality of imperialism, uh, their demands, I think, became um, understandable. Thank you. Last question in the last two minutes. Um, we have many comments coming in thanking you for your excellent talk. Um, one viewer writes, how did Western powers look at Persia in comparison to the other five countries that survived Western imperialism? Uh, more or less uh, the same. The British, for instance, at one point uh, pressed the Iranians to accept mixed courts. They had pretty good experience with mixed courts in Shanghai, in China, and the Ottoman Empire, and so on. So they wanted mixed courts because these deliberations at the Kargozar's office were very often very lengthy uh, and unpredictable. Uh, the Iranians always refused that. They wanted to maintain control. Uh, in other words, an act of resistance, really, against imperialism. And I think very often the, the Rajars are insufficiently credited for their resistance against uh, imperialism. And uh, the British didn't press the point. Why didn't they press the point? Because there were simply not enough British traders uh, in Iran. Uh, trade with Iran was much less important than trade with the Ottoman Empire or with Egypt. I mean, the Ottoman Empire and Egypt had long coasts. Uh, and on these coasts, you had lots of ports uh, in which lots of commercial activity went on. Uh, the presence of Iran, of foreign traders in Iran was not important enough uh, for the British to make a fuss about the absence of mixed courts. Thank you so much. We, we've run out of time, but thank you so much, Professor Shahabi. This is a wonderful talk. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Hopefully the next time we see you, we'll be at Stanford. Um, we wish you all the best and we'll see everyone next week, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.